Canucks talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, my co-host, as always, Canucks insider Thomas Grants. You can read his work at The Athletic as well. Canucks talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at dleamc.com. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, there's a lot going on right now in the in the world of hockey, obviously starting with the Stanley Cup final. Vegas taking a, a, a one-game lead in that one. Uh, but also some coaching hires, some relocation and expansion rumblings. Uh, and an interesting one today, Cole Caulfield signing an eight-year extension, uh, just a hair under $8 million, $7.85 million AAV on that, signing an eight-year extension with the Montreal Canadiens. And uh, that, that gives us an opportunity to play everyone's favorite game, which is what does this seemingly unrelated deal mean for the Vancouver Canucks, if anything, well, well, I don't think it means a lot, to be totally honest with you, because Cole Caulfield is in a different class of player than anyone that the Vancouver Canucks have currently on an entry-level deal or, or coming up for renewal, right? I mean, people look at the $8 million, and I know there was a popular um, like jump to compare the steel contract that the Montreal Canadiens just signed to like Mitch Marner's deal. Mm. O- on Twitter, anyway, I saw a lot of that. Like, Cole Caulfield has 84 points across his entry-level deal. Mitch Marner had 92 or 94 in his platform year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's no comparison here. Of course, he's, the, the, the comparisons here are like Tim Stutzla and Jack Hughes. And that class of player, Josh Norris, where a team went big and long to gamble on an elite talent becoming an elite player before they have. Right? And that's... Like, I know Caulf- Caulfield's goals per game rate was solid, but that line was smoke and mirrors. Like, him, Doc, and Suzuki played some really great hockey. I like a lot of what Cole Caulfield does in terms of the, the areas of the ice that he gets to despite his size to, to launch that wicked shot. Really interesting on the power play. I think he's a, a, a extremely talented young player. But, I mean, we're not talking about a guy who's got, like, multiple 60-point seasons under his belt. We're not talking about a consistent 30-goal scorer. Uh, we're talking about a guy who projects to be those things if he can continue to play the way he has over the course of his first few NHL seasons. So, you know, I, I think this is one where you file it away as, like, really smart, sharp strategy from the Habs. Mm-hmm. How do you recreate the McKinnon contract? That's the fundamental question, right? And the Devils sort of managed to do it, like, after the McKinnon contract, everyone would say things like, well, you know, that's just lucky. You can never have another team do that again. And within like a year of, or what, six months of them, actually before they even won their first Stanley Cup, the New Jersey Devils had mimicked it with, with Jack, Jack Hughes, Hughes. And we all knew it. Um, trying to do something similar. I mean, look at Stutzla. Look at the look at the benefit that the Ottawa Senators had by locking up Stutzla when they did versus negotiating with him this summer off the back of the season that he just had. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you have elite talent, gamble long on it, it is is sort of my point of view. Now, does it always work? No. I mean, the Marner thing is a perfect example. Like Marner, Matthews, Nylander, Tavares, you do those deals and then the cap doesn't increase <laughs> for five years. You, you know, you're going to be sledding uphill. But 
when you have the opportunity to lock up a player like like Caulfield, especially if you think this is a guy with the chops to be a perennial 35-40 goal scorer, and by the way, I think that's a perfectly reasonable bet. He's as likely as anyone else in the league under 22, mm-hmm. and in fact, more likely than most, more likely than just about anyone. If you can lock that guy up and the cap grows beyond this season, I mean, th- that could be an absolute home run deal. Actually, what's sort of most interesting about this deal is why did Cole Caulfield sign it? Well, and I that to me, what stands out about this is because obviously it's not a direct comp for the guy who we're all talking about, which is Elias Patterson because of position, because of career track record, upside, all of that, right? It's not a direct comparison. The interesting thing to me, though, is I look at it and it's not an eye-popping number for Caulfield, right? It's 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 a big number, but it's not something that you have a hard time seeing him grow into, right? You can really easily see how that's going to be a big win for the Habs, or at least the chance that it could be a big win for the Habs down the road. And when I look at that, like the two things it says to me are one, that we're still very much in this flat cap environment, right? Mm-hmm. Where that's suppressing salaries a little bit. I think the other thing is he's a winger. Like one of my first thoughts was now, you know, Cole Caulfield – what, just over a million more than Brock Besser next year, right? And if you're trying to move Brock Besser, like, that's a problem for you, right? Your your teams are getting their young elite wingers on deals now that aren't even that much more than what Brock Besser is making. And so I think those are two big things, right? That the flat cap is still suppressing salaries. And then as you say, okay, well, why does Caulfield take it? And for as much as we've talked about, you know, Austin Matthews has structured things differently. Matthew Kachuk used his leverage to pick his destination and and where he wanted to go and get to the team he wanted to be with. I think it's a good reminder there is still this reluctance, I think, for players to truly embrace that side of things, right? It's like, hey, you're giving me an eight-year, almost, uh, you know, over $60 million contract? All right. <laughs> I can I can make I can guarantee myself sixty million dollars with the sign of a pen here. I'm willing to do that rather than you know sign a three year deal and then when the cap is spiked I'm going to really cash in. It, it's still going to be a tough uh, I think a tough choice for players to make to take that second option. So I guess the other thing you could read into here is Caulfield's a CAA guy. So if you wanted an indication that Creative Artists Agency, which of course represents Elias Pettersson mm-hmm. um, is not advising clients to like, Hey, wait, let's do, let's go short term yeah. and see what looks on the other looks. This looks like on the other side, particularly in the wake of Gary Bettman's commentary that he expects the cap to go up by 1 million, which obviously, I mean, there's obviously some owners that are raring to go and improve their teams and have flexibility, but make no mistake. The best part, about the return to play agreement that the league made with the players back in 2020, the spring of 2020, like the, the hard part of that deal was we're going to have to eat a lot of upfront costs here to make these guys whole, to keep these guys whole. And we're going to have to operate for at least a partial season and maybe two without fans in the building. Mm -hmm. And that's going to hurt. But on the other side of this, we might get multiple seasons of runway where we're making record revenues. And also not sharing the full 50-50 with the players. You know, I mean, that's that's now baked in for another season unless the PA wants to push back and give them something. So, you know, Gary Bettman's commentary didn't surprise me. It was like a reminder, like, hey, my constituency is pretty happy with this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, it was at the very least, it was a reminder. They're not going to do it just because. 
You know what I mean? No. Like if the, if the PA really, really wants it and is willing to offer something of value in return, maybe they'll think about it and they'll explore ways. But they're not going to do it just because, as you say, some owners want to spend more money. Well, and, and I mean, why would the PA do it when it's going to impact their escrow payments? You know, just eat it for one more year, in my view anyway. That's your better play at this point as opposed to going back to the negotiating table when you don't have to. You, you made this agreement. You made this agreement to protect escrow. This was baked in. Like you can go read a piece I wrote at The Athletic the day of. That, that spelled out, like, the problem for players is there's going to be a run through much of this decade, or at least the first half of this decade, where the owners are raking it in and they're not fully sharing in it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the that's the cost of valuing escrow the way they did. Anyway. Um, so, the I think the useful data point here, CAA not hesitating to advise their clients to go long, despite the fact that, you know, if... You're a player like Pedersen, and if you decide to drag your feet a bit, there's a real chance that you're negotiating in a totally different cap world yep. than what you're negotiating today. And, and I mean, just to give you an idea of it, $83.5 million is our expected upper limit for this upcoming season. If the cap goes up, say, $8 million, which, by the way, absolutely could happen given you know the $6 billion plus in revenue that the league made this year in addition to a variety of other um, sort of crosswinds in the league's favor. Uh, you know, we haven't seen normal cap growth under the new U.S. TV deal, which is a pretty <laughs> uh, banner deal for the league, especially in comparison with the former NBC one. So we don't have a really good sense of what it looks like, but $8 million's not outside the realm of possibility based on what people I chat with sort of assume. You know, if that happens, like the equivalent of 7.85, which... Caulfield just signed today is like 8.6. Yep. Well, you times that by eight. (laughs) I mean, that's a meaningful chunk of change for a player. So, you know, I do think, I do think it would be in players' interests to play it out here. But as you said, the power of certainty, the power of the guaranteed contract, Mm -hmm. which of course, especially you think of it from Cole Caulfield's perspective, as you said, a lot of upside there, but not as if he has a track record of being, you know, an elite top of the lineup player or anything. Smaller guy has already had injuries in his career. And, you know, Bob from Nanaimo Texan with guaranteed money contracts and high levels of long term injury compared to other sports. It's not surprising that players opt for the security over the total potential money. That's from Bob in Nanaimo. I, I guess the thing that surprises me is because I know um, from Elliot Friedman and others, they've been wondering, could he eventually sign a bridge? Is that it doesn't seem like they really had to go to an uncomfortable number to get him to all eight years. You know what I mean? It wasn't as if, hey, I'll do eight years, but only if you really extend yourselves to a place you're not very comfortable with, right? Like, this seems like a very reasonable number to go eight years, and that surprises me a little bit, that they didn't maybe milk it for a little bit more. But again, I get it. I get why players traditionally take the certainty over, you know, the the potential upside of playing things just right and matching it up with salary cap spikes and all that. Yeah, I mean, for sure you do. And and so I like this gamble for Montreal, and I think there's a lesson in here uh, for teams across the board, but I don't know that there is one for the Canucks unless you're considering things like going long on Hoaglander or like mm. betting on Vasily Podkolzin to break out before he does. And I don't think this team's got that appetite, nor do they have the cap flexibility. I mean, the logic of betting on a Hoaglander breakout requires you to be able to like stomach paying him more. Short yeah, you got to pay a little bit more now to lock up the, mm-hmm. the to lock up um you know the potential upside of him really becoming you know like a complimentary second line winger type type guy. Uh, I don't I don't sense that this organization's in any rush to make that bet. 
I don't even think it's a, a realistic consideration, and I don't think they have the cap flexibility to do it even if they were inclined, right? Like, you have to grind Ho- Hoaglander down because that's sort of what your situation dictates here. So, you know, I, I don't know that there's a ton of direct applicability beyond the fact that, hey, look, hopefully uh, hopefully CAA has Pedersen in a, in a similar state of mind and willing to go long in, in sort of a flat cap environment mm-hmm. as opposed to seeing what the universe might look like for a 100-point centerman in, in a world with a $91.5 million dollar cap. The difference is Caulfield was up, right? Like this, this one kicks in in September, Correct. right? So that's a big difference where it's like he kind of, you know, could he do a one-year deal and then revisit it? Yeah, but he had to sign a deal right now. Obviously, Pedersen has the choice of playing out his final season under contract, and so – in that situation, even if you are like, no, I, I kind of would prefer the certainty, it's easier to – like, you're you're closer to seeing, if you're Elias Pettersson, what the next salary cap world looks like, right? And it could easily be if, if the rumbling in, you know, January is, hey, we're going to see that $8 million spike, it becomes a lot easier to wait until your deal is actually up. And, and that, so that's what I wonder here, right? Is he, yeah – Caulfield went long. He didn't go short to see what the salary cap spike would be, but he was actually at a contract. Pedersen has that final year on his deal, so I wonder if it's a little easier for Pedersen to do it, potentially. Um, Andrew and Langley text in, uh, Caulfield's new signing does relate to the Canucks in the sense that the Canucks took Pod Colson over him. How much more patient should we be with Facilli before we start viewing him as an asset to move rather than an important young player? of this team's future. And I mean, there's a couple talking points in there, right? Like one is the comparison between Pod Colson and guys selected after him. Obviously Caulfield's <laughs> one. Boldy is another really uh, one that really stands out. Both guys that have signed long-term big money deals now with their teams and are really good offensive contributors. The other question is, you know, how much, how much patience should the organization have with facility Pod Colson? He's going into the final year of his ELC it's not a make or break season. Like that's that's too extreme for a player who's still relatively young. But you really want to see some offensive progression from Vasily Podkolzin, right? You really have to see some of that upside that justified taking him uh, with a pick that high start to actually play itself out on the ice. And it does again, it's not make or break. It doesn't mean if you don't see it, then you trade him or he's a bust or anything like that. But if you're counting on this guy to be a long-term fixture of your top six, you you have to see that upside at some point. Well, so I'm of two minds here. And and to be clear, I'm more about discussing this of two minds. I actually have a, a, a personal view on this, which is that it's too early to, to really dunk or parade or declare it one way or the other. This is not a gauntlet that is run yet, right? So... When you're picking a player like Vasily Podkolzin, right, you have to understand that you are drafting a rarer player type than what you're drafting if you're drafting a Boldy or you're drafting a Caulfield. Now, obviously, Caulfield and Boldy profile somewhat differently because Boldy is more like projectable NHL mm-hmm. size. Uh, Caulfield's a little bit of a size outlier, a little more Bryce Young there. So you're you're sort of looking at it a little bit differently, but... You know, in both cases, super gifted, perimeter-oriented scorers, right? From the perspective of an NHL team at the draft table table evaluating players, when you're considering these three players, Pod Colson, Boldy, Caulfield, the reason you talk yourself into, or in fact decide to prefer Pod Colson is, with his weight, 
right? Heaviness, mm-hmm. motor. You know, A, we think he can overcome the skating limitations, which he always had relative to Caulfield and Boldy. But two, we think that his ability to be a two-way physical impact player is going to ultimately offset the value of, of you know, if you think those guys had, had better offensive skills. And by the way, like, I don't think that was much in doubt. No, no. Like, certainly not Ca- Caulfield's scoring ability. No. Everyone knew Everyone knew what the score was on everyone, that. Everyone knew if he was three inches taller, he was going in the top five. Yeah. Right? But that's the bet you're making. Now, when you're talking about young NHL forwards, okay, you're talking about 22-year-olds, 21-year-olds, guys like this. Scoring in the NHL is a young man's game. We talk about this a lot, right? But winning in the NHL sometimes takes a little bit yeah. more maturity, right? So when I talk about a statistical prime, I'm talking about like the height of a, of a guy's fastball in terms of their ability to bend the game to their will offensively. But as we've seen countless times over the course of NHL history, young, high-octane offensive guy doesn't necessarily win the cup at 21. Sometimes they have to win the cup at 25, 26. Sometimes you have to learn how to win, get that business-like mindset in terms of how you prepare, in terms of how you compete, in terms of the you know gumption you have with, with things on the line. The Steve Eiserman story is sort of the classic, but I mean, go up and down the list. You'll find Stamkos, you'll find Eiserman, or sorry, you'll find Ovechkin. You, I mean, you can find a million examples. Mm-hmm. And like high-end two-way wingers in the NHL, if you name them, they ain't 22. Like there's just not a lot of players who at 22 are driving play or driving good defensive results or good two-way results. Um, you know, that it's it's uh, that's an older man's game. You need to learn the position. You need to learn the league. It's a different type of skill set. Um, you know, let me give you a good example, too, and happens to be Pod Colson's countryman, and this is obviously the most extreme example, but Valerie Nichushkin yep. comes to mind, right, where it comes in the league as a high-octane scorer, kind of fizzles out, because uh, out as that anyway, but reinvents himself as this two-way guy, right? Like, it's not till 24-25 that he became this four-checking monster, um, and you can find uh, various examples of this. So, for me anyway, I'm not ready to have the Canucks whiffed on Pod Colson conversation, because I've always sort of seen Pod Colson not as like a top line scoring type player, but as like a really rare type of middle six, you know, the the heavy press type player. Mm-hmm. If he hits, um, and the, and that that's a hugely valuable asset to have, provided that that player is at a certain level is able to help you win. I just don't think it's like I I'm not encouraged necessarily by the fact that Pod Colson didn't take a step last season. I think that it's clear that he's a thinker that he's like an overthinker a little bit. I think his confidence can wax and wane a little bit too easily. And if your confidence is waxing and waning under Bruce Boudreaux, like, man, you know, that's tough because that's as po- it's as a much, good environment. That's as in. much positive yeah. reinforcement as you're ever going to get. So, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not like pounding my fist on the table and saying like Pod Colson is better than Boldy and Caulfield by any means. I'm just saying it's too soon for us to know based on the nature of the bet the Canucks placed on him in the first place, which was not that this guy's going to be uh, a higher scoring player in his age 19, 20, and 21 seasons than some of the some of the skilled wingers taken after him, but that over the course of his career, his unique profile, his size, his work rate, his defensive IQ will make him a better winner for us. And and I just don't think we've seen enough 
to declare that bet one way or the other. You can definitely say it's trending, like, you know? Yeah, if, if, well, that's the thing. If like, on draft day it was a minus 110 favorite, it's now probably a plus 350 dog, but it's not a long shot ticket that I'm, like, completely out on. Yeah, and again, I, that's why I do think this upcoming season is really big, right? Huge. To kind of get reestablish that growth that we saw in his first season that we didn't see last year, right? And you, yes, it was Bruce Boudreaux who's all about positive reinforcement and Maybe if his confidence was lacking, that's a little worrisome. But we also know just the product the team was putting on the ice was really, really dire. Right? Like Bud Colson was no. I was not a big fan of the work. <laughs> I was not a big fan of the work. Me neither, Bud. Um, Oof. So like, there's that element as well. But you do want to see him get back to that positive trajectory. I will say, and to your point about you know when prime winning ages and what what will it take for Pod Colson to get there where he's really helping you make an impact. You know, as we talk about trying to find those bargain long-term deals, there's there are worse things than having a high upside guy not produce huge numbers on their ELC, right? Like you you that can end up being a positive for you if they if they are just a bit of a late bloomer, if you are able to handle their next contracts right. And he's going into the final year of his ELC. Who knows what his next deal will look like? It'll obviously depend a lot on what he does this year. But there are worse things than locking up a, you know, uh, a guy who hasn't broken out on his ELC who ends up being a late bloomer. Like that can end up being a positive for your team, but I do think you want to see you want to see some of that offensive touch and really just that growth start to come out on the ice for Pod Colson this year. Yeah, and I mean, again though, you're going to need like the caps going up at a good time potentially for the Canucks vis-a-vis Pod Colson. Yep, right? So, you know, if he takes what well, here's what I here's what I want to see from Pod Colson cuz I don't care where he plays in the lineup. Um, or sorry, that's not true. I care where he plays. I, I, but I'm not saying I don't like need to see him penciled in to like top six. No, no, no. Or no. anything like that. What I want to see, though, is the engagement from a battle-winning perspective that we saw down the stretch in the Bruce There It Is season. Like where, you know, I don't want to come out of next season being like, man, I saw... I can think of 10 times that I saw Dakota Joshua like overpower X defender along the defensive zone half wall or, you know, um, as an F1. I can think of 20 times that I saw Dakota Joshua did it and made a note that was like, hey, good work. And I can remember very few of yeah, <laughs> the that when Pod like, did it. That's what I want to see from Pod Colson personally. I, I like, I don't care about the scoring totals. I don't care about that stuff. I just want to see him be in the mix and annoying and disruptive and a handful on a game to game basis. Like that's what I want to see. I want to see that consistency. I, I I'm so sure certain that if we see that consistency, the rest will follow. Uh, you know, I like the fact that he has the confidence, like he has battles with confidence concerns me a little bit, but the other side of that coin is smart guy who works really hard and is hard on himself. Like that's the profile of a guy who tends to figure it out, mm. you know? So, Anyway, I look at Pod Colson as a guy worth being patient with. I do think that the offensive limitations are are real. Do you remember when he was making shots? Like he he he'd have those every goal he scored just looked like an absolute like a snipe laser. Yeah, people were getting really excited about that. Like I I don't know. I don't think that that's going to be his game. I think if he ever becomes a twenty five goal guy, it's going to be with like deflections. <laughs> and tap ins and winning battles down low. Like I don't think he's going to be a creator. Himself, mm-hmm. I think he's going to, you know, be a be a press, be a, a more Zach Hyman than, um, 
Nugent Hopkins. Yeah. And that's fine. That's like a really valuable piece. I, I just he deserves a little bit more patience. I don't think it's fair to look at, you know, Caulfield's 84 career points or, you know, Matt Boldy's all-star quality season last year and be like, those guys are for sure better and will always be better. I'm not quite there yet, particularly because for me, Pod Colson's just such a different type of piece. And I think the other thing I'd like to see from Pod Colson, this is only partially in his control, but is a, a consistent role and a consistent spot in the lineup oh. and just clarity on what he's being asked don't to do. Don't get me started. Consistent line mates that help, that mesh with him and that he can complement as well, but just that kind of consistency, I think, would go a long way to helping him take those steps. Again, that's partly in his control because you got to perform in the role that you're given, but that's also a commitment from the coaching staff and from the organization to make sure you're getting him uh, that consistency next season. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, we will uh, turn our attention uh, a little bit to the Canucks, but also to the Stanley Cup Finals. Our guy Randy Janda down in Vegas uh, covering the Stanley Cup Final, and we will talk to him about that and more. That's coming up next. It is Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650, Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance. Uh, we are live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. We now go to the phone line where our guy, uh, Sportsnet 650's Canucks analyst, also, of course, working for Hockey Night in Canada, Punjabi, live from the Las Vegas Strip, Randeep Janda. Randeep, what's going on, man? How's Vegas? Gentlemen, how's it going? I'm uh, sipping a coffee here as I get ready for tonight's game. Very different from my previous Vegas experiences. <laughs> Have you got, you got a nice location poolside or anything, or just in your room? Uh, not yet. No, just, just chilling in the room right now. I actually flew in this morning, so I didn't right. hear uh, up until this early early this morning. So I'm chilling. I'm, I'm hanging out right now. No pool yet. Are you going to uh, Are you going to be making the trip to Miami for this one as well? Oh, no, no. Oh, this is uh, well, <laughs> just sorry. a short flight. I, unfortunately, well, uh, unfortunately, can't do both. I hope you enjoy the time you have there. Um, what did you think about Game 1? What was your uh, your major takeaway from the uh, the Golden Knights Game 1 win in the final? Yeah, I love, you know, from an entertainment value, I think you could see the, you know, why this is going to be an exciting series if it goes that long. Obviously, I think there's a lot of people like myself that are, are very high on the Vegas Golden Knights, but you look at the way that this game was played and just Vegas being a complete team, but there's that element of, you know, Florida having that resiliency. You know, they're not going to stop fighting. They're going to play that tough game. They're going to play on that line they're going to be aggressive with their forecheck which sometimes leads to mistakes maybe them being a little too relentless um, especially if Vegas can make those passes and get the puck out of their zone real quick but you know one thing for sure it's going to be played a, a, a very a fast pace on top of that there's going to be some nastiness in this series and we saw that late in the third period so I love that you know one thing I think the players are going to have to get used to more Florida than Vegas at this point is are the refs going to call it the same way that they did in the last game? Because there are a couple of calls in, in that game that you're saying, okay, this is the cup final. I'm kind of surprised they're calling mm. that. I feel like Florida is going to have to adjust a little bit more than Vegas because Florida plays that game where, you know, they're going to come at you and, and they might be playing on that line a, little, a lot more than Vegas. Well, in Florida and like, especially towards the end, right? When Bennett and Kachuk start mixing it up and I get it. That's their MO. That's one of the, that's how they play, right? They play on that line. They like to get in the opponent's face. 
But I look at just the overall team toughness of Vegas. They, they don't. It's not as if they have an enforcer or anything, or necessarily like a heavyweight champ back there or anything. But just basically everyone on that team is either really big or really tough or both. And I'm just not sure how productive it's going to be for Florida to use their energy trying to play that game. Like I, I don't know if it's going to work to actually knock Vegas off their game. Yeah, what's really challenging about playing Vegas is those two fronts, right? You mentioned the big defenseman out on the back where, A, yes, they are big, and B, they can move the puck up the ice. And, and that's the difference. If you can get there and hit them and be aggressive on the forecheck and separate man from puck, that is one thing. But if this team isn't, is in a position to make those passes you know, and, and generate speed through the neutral zone, it's going to be a long series for Florida. The other thing is, uh, from the forward perspective, Vegas, their forwards and their centers specifically do a lot of work in the defensive zone so those defensemen don't have to you know, vacate their area uh, in and around that net. The reason Aiden Hill throughout the playoffs has been very successful, credit to him, but also credit to that defense for making sure that second chances aren't there. That's also a credit to the forwards who have been pulling their weight and then some. So you know, this is a, a big team, but they're also a very skilled team. And Florida's going to have to obviously play their style. You can't deviate from your, your strategy when you're, you know, that's your identity. But at the same time, uh, you're going to have to make sure that you don't take as many penalties because last thing you want to do is give Vegas more opportunities to score in the power play. Randy, were you surprised at all by how much the long distance, like high game, the, the walking the blue line, what, what Vegas was able to generate outside of home plate, how much trouble that gave the Panthers in game one? Absolutely, and I think you know both of those goals. If we look at the Shea Theodore and the Zach Whiteclaw goal, um, you know that was something that where a first of all, to your point, kind of dancing that blue line, working the way to the center of the ice, and you know having that success. Well, one part of that was even though the puck wasn't making its way down low necessarily through a passing perspective, you saw on that Shea Theodore goal, what Brett Howden gets to the front of the net, takes away the eyes of Bobrovsky, and it's attacking those weaknesses of Bobrovsky. And listen, when a guy's got 935 safe percentage heading into game one. Uh, there's not many weaknesses, but credit to Vegas for knowing, okay, if we start moving a little bit at the blue line, we get these shots through and target that glove hand side, which they did both times on both of those goals up high. Um, that was something that clearly they, they had that pre-scout. And then on top of that, you know, the hottest goalie in the playoffs, definitely a consummate contender. Uh, if you take away his eyes, I don't care who you are. Uh, you go after those weaknesses and, and you know, take away the eyes. It, it's going to be tough for any goalie to stop that. So I was a little surprised by that. But at the same time, you saw where they were targeting. It was up high. That March or so goal was up high blocker side. But the other two, uh, both glove hands, uh, you could understand why they're saying, all right, we might take a shot from a distance, but we're going to still target that same area. One of the things I, I love about this series is there's so many individual players who are just really exciting to watch. And Mark Stone, I mean, the hands to knock that puck out of the air right down to his feet, basically, and then immediately snap it past uh, Bobrovsky. I thought that was just a phenomenal play. And I thought, in general, Mark Stone and Chandler Stevenson were fantastic in that Game 1 performance. Totally. And Mark Stone was, to me, that was the Mark Stone game. I know Aiden Hill gets the, the love for that save, which was unbelievable, but... You know, looking at the way he played that game, even before the goal, you know, the takeaways, mm -hmm. the defensive play that Mark Stone has, he was active throughout the game, what, seven shots on goal. But I also love the fact that, you know, the personality of the captain, it, it kind of trickles its way down to the rest of the team. And in the second period, 
Matthew Kachuk, I don't know if you remember this, guys, but he was cross-checking Mark Stone. It was on camera, and you could see that he's trying to get a response out of Mark Stone. Even, even well before the festivities late in the game, he was trying to get him, drag him into that alley, maybe get some coincidental minors, just provide his team some sort of energy, and Stone didn't bite. So the play is one thing. When You can play a two-way game like that. You can score that insurance goal that gives your team the win. But what I loved about his game was just super calm. And then later on in the game, you see Nick Haig, he, he you know, turns the other way. Petrangelo, yeah, punch me in the face. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> a bunch of other guys. But it really starts in that second period where Mark Stone's saying, yeah, you do what you want to do. I'm not going to react to you. So you obviously everyone remembers the Marchand-Daniel Sedin speed bag. But um, we also yeah. got Kachuk-Marner earlier in the playoffs. I mean, this happens occasionally. And then if the, the player who's who got Speedbag's team loses, it becomes a, a big narrative thing. One thing I think Kachuk misplayed here is he Speedbagged too many guys over the course of the game, so then it's not like one guy has to answer questions about it. It's like everyone's just like, hey, how do you deal with all that shenanigans? And it becomes sort yeah. of generalized as opposed to being a specific guy being publicly accused of being like weak or unresponsive. What do you think? Yeah, the, re- the return on investment was really lacking after that, that second punch, right? Because you're essentially saying, um, all right, what's the value here? Now everybody's looking at Kachuk and saying, it's not necessarily a, I can't believe he punched the captain or he punched a veteran. It's, he's doing it to everybody. Just stop, you know, stop paying attention to this guy. So I think with Matthew Kachuk, it's, and, and Sam Bennett, for that matter, plays a very similar style. He can be uh, pretty dirty when he wants to, but you have to be very careful. And this kind of reminds me of, remember, guys, Vegas versus Vancouver. Remember when Antoine Roussel was not fighting Ryan Reeves, but he was kind of going around mm. doing those antics, and we were just like, all right, what's going on here? Because at some point, it's got to stop. It's no longer having the desired effect that you want. It's actually making you look kind of foolish. And Vegas kind of turned you know, the tables on Matthew Kachuk and to a certain extent, Sam Bennett. So I'm with you on that, Drance. I think after the first moment where Stone didn't react and then Kachuk comes back and does it in the third period a couple of times, Vegas is like, all right, we've already won. Uh, This guy is just doing it to everybody. Uh, He's not getting a response from anybody. So guess what? We're not going to actually even respond to him. So to me, it kind of reminded me of that Roussel hugging, awkward hug to Ryan Reeves where like, (laughs) I want to fight you, but I don't want to fight you. I don't know what to do here. Yeah, and from Vegas's perspective, I mean, if that happens to you in a game you lose, okay, maybe there's a lot of frustration. You're like, ah, I wish I had, I wish I had not maintained my composure and lashed out. But they won the game, so it's like it's a really easy answer. It's like, yeah, he was running around being an idiot, and we just played our game and we won. We'll take that trade every time. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's one thing to do that in a game where you lose, but if you win, why get frustrated? Why change going into next game? And I think there's a really important part of this, guys. Go back to that Edmonton series when Petrangelo reacts to Leon Dreisaitl mm. and gets suspended for a couple of games. You know that, especially when he's getting punched in the face, he doesn't react. That's still in their minds to say, we cannot do anything stupid. We cannot do anything like that where, you know, we've been down this road before. We know what happens. So I, I think that probably is a, a pretty big point in some of the veterans' minds to say, hey, it doesn't matter. Even Petrangelo's teammates with Keith Kachuk in his, you know, I think, if I'm not mistaken, his final year in St. Louis. So he knows Matthew Kajak very, very well. But a part of it is saying, yeah, I can't make that mistake yet again, which cost him in the Edmonton series and, and could have cost him the series. Randy, one of the guys that Kachuk went after, Nick Haig, gave him this absolutely beautiful get a load of this guy smile. Like, just like perfect. And, and Nick Haig, of course, 
famously gave who was it the thumbs up one of the Dallas oh, yeah. players yeah yeah the thumbs up the last round um he's really shooting up my if you're a fan of the opposing team um you know that his face is like a 10 on the punchability ranking what what do you think what do you think like from Henrik Lundqvist who's got the least punchable face in the world because everyone thinks it should sure. be protected to Ville Niemannen you remember Ville Niemannen former oh, Calgary yeah, Flames on. enforcer he oh. works out still with all the uh, he he works out Barkov in the summer actually in Tampere uh, from from the scale of Lundqvist to Niemannen one to ten Nick Haig where, where's he where's he ranking in terms of punchability okay I'll, I'll throw in another name there as well Canucks fans didn't feel this way but I can guarantee the rest of the uh, league felt this way Yarko Rutu uh, yeah, for every other oh. fan base in the NHL they all felt about Yarko Rutu that way but what Nick a Haig, you know what he's like a number five on my list because I don't know I'm, I'm maybe I'm a fan of Nick Haig maybe I love the way he plays because yeah he's six foot six he's a he's a um, you know, a big dude who can play the game well, what, 230 pounds. But as far as, like, punchable face NHL players, I think he's kind of in the middle of the road. I, I wouldn't say – I wouldn't say – I think there's more punchable faces. It sounds like you're trying not to get on the wrong side of a, a guy who's six foot six, 230 pounds. You're like, no, I love Nick Hag. What are you talking about? I was going to say – Ask me that question when I leave Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> but it is pretty wild, though, because as you say, it's like this guy, 6'6", 230, and not a plug. You know, like he, he can, oh, he's he, good. He can handle his business. And he's, he's really like, good. he's on their bottom pair. <laughs> he's not even one of their key defensemen. And he's this good. It, it really goes to show you just like how incredibly deep that blue line is. Totally. And then, you know, I, I think when we look at, you know, the players individually, because you go down to that fourth line. You know, that third line is ridiculous. Uh, yep. The second line, just the depth overall. But I think Bruce Cassidy has also had a, a significant impact on this team, just in terms of their personality. They're much more calm in that moment where, uh, you know, with Pete DeBoer, and listen, he almost made it to the Stanley Cup final again. So not to discredit him, obviously. He's done a great job in the NHL being a coach. Uh, but the personality of this team was a little bit more different in the past they would have their foot on the gas pedal all the time they're pretty ruthless whereas Cassidy has kind of brought that calm to this team so when you talk about not only being a, a you know a bottom pair defenseman but from one to six on that defensive unit they're all pretty calm they, they play their style of game and obviously there's a couple of elite players but there seems to be you know from top line forward to the 13th forward the Cassidy effect to me is is pretty front and center with the personality of this team is very different from what it was last year do you think Vegas's blue line and the beef on that back end is going to help uh, the likes of Luke Shen get paid this summer? Oof. Um, depends. Uh, you know what? Probably, yeah. Right now, especially looking at both of these teams, more so, more so Vegas because the size difference is, is pretty substantial. The physicality factor. Yeah, if you're looking uh, you know across the league and you're playing that co- uh, you know that copycat game. Yeah, I'm sure. Right shot B, veteran player who's won a couple of cups. Uh, it's not going to hurt his value. I can guarantee you that much. And even though Toronto won that one round, they didn't end up going past that. There was still a number of excellent references coming out of Toronto. Everything you know coming out of Toronto mm. on Luke Shen and that experience was solid. Go back to Vancouver. Come on, this whole market was you know had heart emoji uh, kind of heart eyes emojis for uh, for Luke Shen when he was traded as well. So. So to me, I think that value is going to go up. And when you're talking about a, a two-year deal for a player that is going to be able to play further down a lineup, if he chooses to go to a contender, a lot of this is you know up to Luke Shen and 
whether he wants to take his young family to a different part of the country or a different part of the continent. But are contenders or potential contenders, would they be uh, inspired to give him a little bit more? Absolutely, given what we've, we've seen from the Vegas Golden Knights. Yeah, Luke Shen, uh, he might have been the only member of the Leafs, at least from a player personnel perspective, whose stock went up over the course of the playoffs. Because you're right, even in the round two defeat, everyone was raving about what he brought uh, to that blue line. Talking to Randy Janda here of Sportsnet 650 and Hockey Night in Canada, Punjabi on Canucks Talk. And uh, I did want to get into uh, some Canucks-specific stuff. Obviously, the uh, the Montreal Canadiens signed Cole Caulfield to the big eight-year extension this morning. And, you know, there's some interesting Canucks uh, wrinkles to this one. And one of them is that, you know, Cole Caulfield was picked after Vasily Podkolzin, obviously Matt Boldy in that discussion as well. And, you know, Drance and I were talking in the first segment. I think it's too early to say, oh, that was a gaffe. They completely missed it. You know, they should have taken one of Caulfield or Boldy. But looking ahead to next season with Pod Colson, I do think it's a big year for him to take those next step forwards in his career and show that he has you know, the upside of uh, an impact player at the top of the lineup. What are kind of the key things you're going to be looking for with the silly Pod Colson next season? I think the biggest thing for him right now, and listen, obviously you know, the consistency in his game is something you want to see. You want to see him make the right plays, the right, right reads, in the moment, but I think the biggest knock on Vasily Podkolzin in his young career has been confidence, right? This is a guy that in the preseason last year, he looked like he was ready to tear up the NHL. He looks so confident. He ends up coming into the season, plays a couple of games, you know, well, and then what happens guys, that confidence that Bruce Boudreau had mentioned the year before saying, Hey, he's a good player. Uh, he's a bull. Uh, all of those kind of great descriptors that were used. Uh, he wasn't with the NHL club anymore as a result of that confidence. So, you know, I think with Vasily, there's an element of overthinking in certain moments. And I really love, you know, what he's, A, his attitude. He's a, he's a guy that shows up to the rink and he likes to have fun. But at the same time, you can tell how much, you know, improving means to him. And, and you know, going to the practices, you can see him, you know, in the past working with Gonchar or whether it's foot. Uh, just to be like, you know, body position along the wall. How do, I, how do I win these battles? Which is what you want to see. But to me right now, it's that consistency and that confidence. And, and that's not something that is all that, you know, different from other players that tried to play that style of game. You look at a guy that's playing the, the cup final right now in Ivan Barbashev, right? This was a, a player that played in the queue. And for a few years, and I know he was the second round pick compared to Vasily, who obviously was a lottery pick. Um, but still took a while, took a few years to really develop into that player with that hard skill. And with Pod Colson, that patience is required because those tools are no question there. It's just a matter of you have to bring that t- uh, together consistently. And, and the biggest gap I see with him is just game-to-game, week-to-week confidence. When his confidence there, you know, he can, he can be so aggressive, so physical. He can have that body position on players, in in front of the net, in on you know, those wall battles. But when that confidence is not there, you sometimes don't notice he's on the ice. How would you like to see the Canucks go about building that up, uh, Randy? Because it's it's hard to have a more positive coach, realistically, than Bruce Boudreau, and yet um, that didn't seem to get him going. What, what sort of environment do the Canucks need to construct for Pod Colson to maintain that confidence or at least be put in the best position to do so? Yeah, it's a challenging thing to ask a team that obviously has intentions to, you know, make the playoffs, right? This is something that uh, it's a high-stakes game for the team. So you can't really necessarily say, okay, hey, young player, you're going to be in the top six or you're going to be next to this center 
consistently, whether you produce or not. But the fact is, I think having a consistent role, having a consistent line mate is going to make him that much more confident. You know, he's, he's playing next to somebody that he can develop some chemistry with. And I think that's probably the position where if, A, you have to prove that you're an NHL player. You have to prove that you can be, you know, maybe a third line player, maybe it's a fourth line player to start off the season. But I want to see him playing next to a, a center, next to a line mate that he's going to play with consistently, build that chemistry. And then, you know, if you can move up the lineup, that's great. But at the very least, let's try to see if he can, you know, have success in that role and play with those line mates that, that, you know, maybe he can get a couple of weeks with rather than just constantly there's a, a turnover of moving up the lineup, moving down the lineup, moving out of the lineup. And, and that's where I would start with because I think it is going to be a slightly longer road for Vasily Podkolzin, the type of game he plays. But there are certain things that the team can do that can make it a little bit easier. Yeah, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see Pud Colson under Rick Tockett because we didn't get a lot of a, a lot of chance to see that right with the injury and Pud Colson spending some time in the AHL. But one thing that Tockett showed us is, you know, in Phil DiGiuseppe, he's willing to play a guy up the lineup consistent minutes, even if they don't have super high offensive upside. If they do a lot of those things that Tockett values, right? And for Pod Colson, still a young player, like he has to refine those details. But I do see a path, you know, as with his physical profile to becoming a guy that Tockett can rely on and that Tockett will really like to play. And it's such a rarity in the Canucks lineup, right? There's a reason that Phil DiGiuseppe, to your point, got. You know, a, a premium opportunity is that mm-hmm. there's not many other players that can play that way. Dakota Joshua, uh, in his role, did a good job as well. But, you know, the message to him was be more consistent. Uh, conditioning is something that he's got to focus on, like a lot of Canucks players. But there's a real scarcity with that type of player in the Canucks lineup. So, you know, the opportunity is there for Pod Colson, but you have to, and this is the Rick Tockett line, you have to come in ready to go. Uh, for Vasily Pod Colson, especially, I think when you're, you know, when you're a first round pick like that, uh, you have expectations. There's a lot of talk in the market. There's probably internal expectations to say this 2022-2023 season is going to be, uh, you know, I'm going to it's going to be, a, you know, a great moment for me. I'm going to establish myself as an NHLer, and it turns out that way. Uh, there's even more pressure heading into that, but you can't necessarily, you know, feel that if you're Vasily Podkolzin. You just have to put the work in. You have to get more confident, get those reps in. So, you know, that lineup, yeah, absolutely in the top six. The Canucks need a player like that. PDG was a great start, but you know this team did not make the playoffs. You want to upgrade that position. Vasily Podkolzin could be that, but he's got to do his work in the offseason and definitely in training camp. Randy, appreciate the time, man. Uh, I hope you enjoy your stay in Vegas and enjoy Game 2 tonight. Cheers, boys. Have a good one. That is Randy Janda, of course, uh, 650's Canucks analyst and also doing great work for Hockey Night in Canada, in Canada, Punjabi, down in Vegas, covering uh, the Stanley Cup final and getting ready for Game 2 tonight, weighing in on uh, Vasily Podkolzin and the next steps in his development as well. And the uh, the Miami, or sorry, Miami, the Fort Lauderdale-Vegas axis is pretty appealing from a travel perspective, but let's be real, better in December. Like from a, well, from yes. the perspective of a Canadian journalist on the beat, hundred <laughs> percent. Like, and and June, by the way, rainiest month of the year in Florida. Now, is it the thing though? I haven't been to Florida for a while, but the, what I remember is that it's like it will rain a lot in the afternoon, but for like an hour at a time, and then it would stop, and then it would be. I mean, sunny. that's that's every day. That's just that's always? every day. Okay, yeah, but no, June June you can get like legitimately bad weather for stretches. 
Um, yeah. So I'm. I mean, I. I honestly the like. It's like oh, it's going from Vegas. Yeah. It's like it's 110 it's degrees. So it's 36 degrees. Yeah. Like it's and so that's not hot. even like peak. The peak temperature. It's for so today. hot that the sun oh becomes gosh. your enemy. Yeah. You know where like where like you can feel the sun has like fingers peeling back the skin on your bald head. Maybe you can't relate to that, but <laughs> can't, that's, can't say I've ever experienced that. <laughs> that's how it feels to me. <laughs> nice little peek behind the curtain for 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 the bald guys yeah. out there. That was that was actually me completely ripping off Michael Andache. No, whatever. but I um Vegas. That's the thing. Vegas in the summer does get like you're you're just desperately looking. You're going between a air conditioned place to air conditioned place, and you're trying to limit the time you're outside as much as possible. Yeah, like maybe you go to the pool, but you, that's well, it. Well, you have to be at the if you're outside, it's at the pool. Yeah, it's at the pool. You it's must be in shade at the pool. Um, but still, pretty not not a terrible couple of places. Yeah, not hard for the media done to by. get to to get to visit. No, uh, we will turn our attention to the Canucks and some more off season work. It's uh, everyone's everyone's favorite exercise here on Canucks Talk and at the Athletic, ranking things by tiers. We did it for the free agent third line centers. What are what are you what what are you afraid of today? Tears for tears fears. for fears, and we will uh, do it again for Canucks. Free agent defenseman targets coming up next. You can get your thoughts in 650-650. It is Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Big opinions and good bets. It's the People Show with Bick Nazar. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. It's Jamie Dodd. It's Thomas Drance. We are live from the Kintec studio. Kintec footwear and orthotics. Kintec! Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. Canucks Talk is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at dleamc.com. Calm. Kubota. Um, yeah. Kubota skid steers. <laughs> Love my Kubota skid steers. Let's go. If I ever need a skid steer, first I'm going to look up what it is, and then I'm going to go to Kubota. <laughs> I love Kubota. <laughs> love Kubota for my skid steers. But really, I love Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. They're, uh, they're all great. Um, Well, of course, they're all great, but yeah, them in particular. So, uh, <laughs> before we get to the uh, defenseman thing, uh, just a little bit of interesting... Uh, I don't want to say breaking news, but breaking commentary from uh, our own Elliot Friedman, just saying that there is word Monday afternoon that the Ottawa Senators have begun examining the trade market for winger Alex Debrinket. Hey, see, here's a tip for you. It's not as robust as it was when you guys paid a seventh for it. Yeah, they're probably less than 12 months ago. Going to if if they do that deal, it's going to be at a loss. Uh, can you think? Has there ever been a more widely misunderstood trade? Uh, maybe the Matthew Kachuk one. Like if you go back and look yeah, at the commentary from that I don't one, think so. I mean, I mean, I think the thing was, I don't think I don't think that's fair because I think that's that's on the basis of one year of playoff success for the Florida Panthers, right? I mean, most of the analysis mm. was Flames did pretty well given how tough their circumstances were, mm-hmm. right? Panthers take short term step back for long term gains, and for the most part that played out it's just that the panthers have pulled off a miracle playoff run or something like it right yeah. um but like we shouldn't ignore that the 
Flames had more points in the regular no, season than the Panthers. There were all, there, yeah, there were a lot of like, well, the Panthers got fleeced. It wasn't the dominant oh. one necessarily, but that was like I they gave up Huberto no, no, and Uyghur. But the Debrinket one was like, why would a team like Chicago, you know, who is rebuilding, trade a twenty-five-year-old forward? Mm-hmm. Like, shouldn't mm-hmm. this guy be mm-hmm. young enough to be part of their next core group? And then it was like no one understood why Chicago even did it. And then everyone said it was just this home run part of hot Pierre Summer. Do you remember hot Pierre Summer? Oh, do I ever. Do you remember how much I railed against that? Yep. Oh, my goodness. And the Debrinket deal was one of the major reasons because why do you think the Senators are exploring the trade market for him? Because they don't want to pay him on his next deal. And, no, well, what's that's his ten, QO? $10 million, right? Is it? No, I think that's, is it nine? that's Timo Meyer. Oh, okay. I think but it's nine. nine. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, big. Like Anyways. It's massive. And, you know, he wasn't one of the top scorers in the league this last year. He was good, but he wasn't. You know, playing with Patrick Kane good. Yeah, no, he, he wasn't lights out. So, you know, I, I mean, it's a tough one. It's, it, that QO makes this a really tricky situation. It should have restrained his value better. Chicago managed that risk. Pierre Dorian doesn't seem to have um, in typical fashion. And now they've got significant ownership instability, a massive QO to face off with. A, a, a looming deadline in terms of team-elected arbitration. All the things we went through last summer with Brock Besser. Yeah. But now, on a higher scale, with a QO that's almost $2 million more. And the... Um, the How's Kevin Kurczynski yeah, it's, doing? It's $9 million, by the way. Yeah, the, that's what I thought. QO. Um, Timo Meyer's the 10. Either uh, way, whew! The extra wrinkle of the Ottawa ownership situation, right? And there's been, you know... A lot of people thought it would be done by now, right? And then maybe you're still in the window where new ownership brings in their hockey ops people, and it's not Pierre Dorian making this decision. But at this point, like it looks like Dorian's going to be running the draft and free agency for them. So he is. Everyone, this, this is a this is a really weighty decision for a guy who new ownership could be like giving his walking papers in a few weeks to. Everyone's saying that sales process has really unfolded in tip top manner, tip top fashion. There's no. <laughs> grumbling about it behind the scenes i'll tell you that much oh boy uh by the way this one uh yeah it's that's gonna be interesting to see how that plays out and also like why it's hasn't played out yet and again like we're we're a few weeks away from big big time decisions being made for the hockey team i honestly think the atlantic could be flipped so fast right now like i really think the atlantic is the most fascinating division in hockey i think and people will finally like one of my hockey takes here. I think the extent to which you can just pencil the Toronto Maple Leafs into a playoff spot next year is like vastly overstated. I think Buffalo is quickly mm-hmm. becoming really scary, mm-hmm. especially if they get goaltending of any kind next year. And Devon Levy certainly looks really good. I think the Ottawa Senators, like, look at that roster at this point. I mean, they're probably two smart defender ads away. Like, but like depth guys, not not like the Canucks top pair guys. <laughs> like, yeah. Like a couple a couple of good depth moves, like a half competent general manager, with one summer and a bit of cap flexibility, which they have, should be able to turn this into something pretty interesting. Like that core group is hitting now, and they're really good. Um, I think Detroit, like Detroit, in a different division, Detroit would be far closer to the playoffs than they are in the Atlantic. Like, I, I legitimately don't think there was a ton of daylight in, in real team quality between, say, the Seattle Kraken and the Winnipeg Jets and the Detroit Red Wings. I just think it, it's tougher in the East. And so, 
I sort of look at that division and I, like Tampa Bay's getting long in the tooth. Toronto's got some really significant issues here. Yep. Um, and you know are going to be really hard pressed to keep your Kerfoot bunting class. Like they're going to have to do it again. The the whole find super cheap useful contributors thing again, and they're going to have to do it without Kyle Dubas, who's sort of made that his mo. Uh, like that's a that's a tough task. So I, I sort of look at that division and just think the way it looked this past season and the way we've sort of become accustomed. Oh, and then Boston, we don't even have to get into, right? They have their five million over the cap to start. Like you know, they've got the overage penalties from the bonuses. Yep. Like there's a real chance that they're going to be desperately moving players. Like I don't be surprised if I don't know name a player you think on Boston is good. Like Matt Greslick. Don't be surprised if Matt Greslick is this summer's Oliver Bjorkstrand. I'm not saying I expect it. I'm saying that's well within the realm of possibility, given Boston's cap situation, and not to mention the uncertainty around Krejci and Bergeron. So, you know, the Atlantic to me is this division just, like, ripe for a complete world-turned-upside-down result next season. And if you're Ottawa, and this sale process is dragging out to this point, and you've got sort of a lame-duck general manager... And like even an average one will do to probably make you, you know, at least a coin flip playoff game yep. next year. And that would mean so much for a new man. Oh, man. Group. Are you kidding me? And you're going to sort of back into this offseason. I mean, that's that's massively disappointing. It's uh, it's super weird. It's very, very strange. And I don't know. But I it's mean, all going well. That's nothing uh, to see. Here. <laughs> that looks like how it's going. No one's upset to play out here. Uh, by the way, a listener texts in a skid steer is just four wheels with a bucket or forks on the end. They're the best. The wheels also don't turn. They skid when you steer. Uh, I'm going to take that at face value. That sounds awesome. That sounds super fun. <laughs> so thank you for the listener for the update on what a skid steer is. Uh, turning that's, back. That's like um, that's like every parent teaching their kid how to drive. What? <laughs> they, they skid while they, they skid. Sure. sure. Um, <laughs> all right. That's to why the Canucks. they wear the brown pants. Yes. Yes, indeed. Ranking the Canucks best defenseman free agent targets. Your latest piece up at The Athletic uh, with Harmon Dial. And before we get into some of the individual names, you know, we did this exercise with potential third line center fits last week. And one of the things that... I found just reacting to reading the center version of this article was, you know, there's a lot setting aside the Canucks salary cap situation. There was a fair number of players on the center list where I looked at it and the projected value of their next contract and thought, you know what? I wouldn't, I would be all right with that again in a vacuum, you know, knowing that the Canucks have to uh, do some things obviously to clear salary cap space, but just in general for a generic team to sign a player to that deal, I would feel all right about that. I had the opposite thought reading the defenseman article, and I think it was a good reminder. But sorry, but your reaction is mostly to the evolving hockey yes. projections. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we use these evolving hockey projections, and just to let everyone know, if you go read the athletic article or if you visit, evol- or sorry, is it evolving-hockey.com, they've got this fabulous contract projections tool. And the contract projections tool mines data from capfriendly.com, historical data, combines it with, you know, a, a basic statistical comparison of what, like, players that play a similar amount and produce similarly mm-hmm. um, make on their next deals and then and then produces a contract projection. And they're, they really did well last year. Like, they were 0.9 R squared, which is, like, very, very accurate. For RFAs, that makes sense. Those are a little bit easier to project than UFA values. And they were like 0.8 for UFA values, which is tremendously effective. 
given how unpredictable sort of the whims of like the industry really likes this guy and are bidding his, and are bidding his value up versus you know this guy fell through the cracks and that's a big surprise. I mean, just think about last off season and the guys who sort of were waiting around for contracts versus those who oh, got yeah. it. And it would have been hard to it would have been hard to call your shot on that 100%. on day 1. So it's a really it's a really robust model, like very effective uh, and proven to have some predictive value and I thought their defender values almost across the board were like heavily overweight. Well, it's interesting because I have that reaction too, and there's especially one of them, and we'll go through some of the names, but like Eric Gustafson, right? That's the obvious one. Four years, pro- the projected contract is four years at $4.6 million. and Gustafson's point pr- production has always been really good. I mean, he has a 60-point season uh, on his resume, but his league-wide value has never matched his point production, right? For whatever reason, and we can get into the reasons, but people don't seem to... The league does not rate him as highly as his raw point production would suggest. So, mm. like, that's a clear one where I would say he's not getting that much money. He that That's just not going to happen for Eric Gustafson. I could be wrong, but that's the one that kind of stood out to me. But I was also thinking about it, you know... I wouldn't have expected Eric Branson to get the contract that he got last year, right? The four, oh, uh, no. four by four. So... I look at some of these and think like, man, Brian Dumoulin at four times 4.3, Ian Cole at three, uh, three by three, like, ooh, those make me really nervous. I don't think they'll get that much. But then every summer we see veteran defensemen get these types of deals where you're like, wow, he got what? So I thought it was actually a useful exercise because everyone I, or most of the numbers I saw, I was like, wow, that feels really heavy. But I think part of what that's telegraphing is that free agent, the free agent market for defensemen can get out of whack in a hurry. In a hurry, yeah. You know what? That's a good point. The Good Branson, I would never have guessed that Good Branson would have no, that type a, of value. Yeah, we would have been like, no, that's ridiculous. But then uh, someone's willing to pay it on July 1st. So I can look at these and think, well, that's going to be heavy. But if one or two of those hit, I wouldn't be shocked at the end of the day. Well, like, so Luke Shen, the model projects him to get two years at 1.6. Mm-hmm. I'll take the over. I think Luke Shen is going to get two plus minimum. I, I like, I really do. I think, I think there's going to be teams that are all in on Luke Shen. Uh, Susie, three years, 2.6 million. I would bet the over on that. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's some Gavrikov at four and a half. I bet it's five and a half just based on his combination of size, skating ability, and the fact that he never misses games unless Columbus forces him to sit out for two weeks because he's awaiting a trade. No, I mean, yeah, he's missed like four for reasons of injury. He's missed like three games across his NHL career, that, which is amazing. There's almost no no skill I value more than durability, especially in a guy whose primary value is tied up in eating minutes without hurting me. Yeah, right. Like, oh, you always are healthy and you're always able to skate with and disrupt the top players in the league, even if you're not a super physical guy or a super offensive guy. You're just like. Strong, capable, annoying. Yep. And always available to me. That's, that's you know, absolute mana from heaven for, from a general manager's perspective. So, um, you know, it, it, the model's interesting, but I agree with you. I think, look, we've been talking about it for how long? Defense is the most expensive position. Like, defense is where you really need, um, you know, the, that combination of, like, cap space, prospects coming, mm-hmm. draft capital, if you're going to make a real dent in terms of building it. And, and, you know, I still think when you, I still think the fundamental way to understand and judge, frankly, the, the Rutherford Alvin plan to this point is to look at those deals on the blue line. 
You know, I really think that sum total of deals sort of is everything if you want to understand a through line, if you want to connect the Canucks' plan to, to what they've actually done. And, you know, I, I really think, I know I go over it a lot, but I really think it's worth going over again. Like the, the first, the two seconds, and a fifth, you offload Hamannick and Dickinson's deals in the process. Mm-hmm. And that returns you Heronic, Bear, Dermot, Stillman, who ultimately becomes Josh Bloom. So, you know, the organization's seventh prospect as as the athletic ranks it. So, you know, I think the important thing to note here is twofold. One is when you pay to get off Dickinson and Hamannick and the cap benefit of those deals is actually in the negative, right, because of the fact that Bear and Heronic make more combined mm-hmm. than Dickinson does this n- upcoming year, right? So... The, number one, you have to say, are you better with Dickinson and five million in cap space or with Heronic and Bear? Right? You have to ask yourself that question right off the bat. That's the cap management perspective, right? Are you better with Dickinson and the ability to make a credible bid to Gavrikov? Or plus all the draft capital that you sent out the door, or are you better off with Heronic and Bear? Yeah. Right? That's like question number one. And then question number two is would you pay? A first, two seconds, and a fifth for Baron Heronic. Is that worth the squeeze? Probably not. Like fundamentally, if you're judging this front office group, I think that's the fairest and, and clearest way to do it. Like they came in with two main tasks manage the cap better and upgrade the defense. And they sort of bundled those two things into one strategy, have made five trades to sort of slowly accomplish it. It's the closest thing you can say to like a plan. And I mean, I just struggle to look at it and say that it's good strategy or that on balance, they've paid an appropriate price for the level of upgrades that they brought in. You know, I really struggle with that. Yeah. And the thing is, as much as we're the this again, looking at this list is where the lack of cap space really hurts, because, you know, you mentioned the Vlad Gavrikov one and it's projected at four years, four and a half million. You would bet more at five and a half million. But Gavrikov and the other name that really stands out, Ryan Graves, four years projected at four point seven five. Again, I would take the over on that just because, you know, six foot five, 220 pounds, very credible uh, shutdown defenseman. But you know, even if you get like if you get Ryan Graves at four years, five and a half million, I think that's a pretty reasonable deal. But obviously right now, and that's like that's the type of player that they really, really need who would look great next to Philip Ronick in your top four. Right. Graves is I, I so Graves is one of those odd ones for me where statistically speaking, one of the things that makes Graves so appealing in my view is. It's not just the six, five, 220 pounds. Mm-hmm eats tough minutes and hard penalty killing minutes for breakfast. Although all of that is nice. His scoring stats, like his individual scoring stats are like first pair level at five on five because he's not a power play guy. He doesn't play on the power play, yeah. Sorry? He doesn't play on the power play, yeah. At five on five over the course of the past few years. And yet he's played in such high octane offensive environments in Colorado and, and New Jersey that that's not really him, right? Like he's not an offensive driver. He should be kidding nobody in terms of being an offensive driver and yet a lot of those points are primary like by primary points he ranks really um credibly against some of the first pair defensemen around the league and and so to me you know 
like it's one thing to be Gavrikov, and I watched Gavrikov play with LA, and I watched him play with Columbus, and I'm like, okay, this guy's a sort of non-physical shutdown guy with great range and really good and really good wheels, and he's never hurt, and I like all of that. But Graves is a physical guy with a lot of the same attributes, jumbo sized, and pretty consistently, I've seen him play that role in a way that doesn't take anything off the table from like a high octane aggressive attacking team. That to me is like, well, yeah, I mean, he's done it with Colorado and New Jersey, <laughs> right? And yeah. like fit in and kept uh, up more than fit in, been like productive, especially at even. So to me, you know, like if I was building my list of top targets, like I think Gavrikov's going to be the industry's favorite target. I think Gavrikov more than Graves, really. I do. I think, I think, I think Gavrikov, the, the skating ability that Gavrikov has mm. at his size, that speed size combo, I think is almost entirely unique. In this draft class, or in this UFA, because I just look at what Vegas is doing, and like Graves would fit in seamlessly on the on the Golden Knights yeah. blue line. You know but, what I mean? But like, so would Gavrikov. Yeah, like Gavr- It's not like Gavrikov's not six three. No, no, he's big pounds. too. I think Graves has the physicality edge, yeah. right? But you're right; they both kind of do fit that profile. And I just think teams are going to look at Vegas and like look at both of those guys, Gavrikov and Graves. Like, oh man, yeah. that's our chance to level up close to what the Golden Knights are rolling out there. But Gavrikov has the speed. Like, Gavrikov's... Right. Gavrikov's backward skating is forward skating. Like, Gavrikov's so good. It's so smooth in terms of of his movement. I just... I think... I think he's going to be the class. I I would... If... if, I wish they had um, prices on this so we could look at it, but I I would bet that he's the highest paid. Defenseman. You have a defenseman. I think so. Really? Even more more than, than like, Severson? Yeah, I think more than Severson. Yeah, that's interesting. Um... Well, in that case, I mean, like again, Ryan Graves, if he's going for less than Gavrikov, that becomes very, very interesting as a as a target. Now, again, and we, you know, always coming back to the, the four, Chicago four trade. Four and down. a half five, I think you're looking at that. Like if you if let's say you did the Chicago trade down, it was Brock Besser's deal that you moved and you signed Graves to four years five million. Like to me, that is we've made our team better by you know, inefficient money from the wings and addressing a need that we really need in our blue line. And yeah, you sacrifice some future value, but you don't crush your future value because you still have 19 and a second round pick, which you didn't have already. Like that is I just almost come... the template for the, the needle they're trying to thread right now, right? I, I see. So, oh, the Chicago trade down. You're saying yes. not the, okay. So you do the Chicago trade down and you And add... you sign Graves with the money freed up by moving Besser. I mean, I see what you're saying, but I don't love it. Like the the problem being that at the end of the day, that's Graves at five, right? So projected out a year, projected out a year. Yeah, because then you're signing Chronic, presumably. <laughs> Let's say seven, right? seven minimum, but like seven. Oh, sorry, seven minimum if he hits, mm-hmm. if he is who you think he is. You're looking at seven million. If he is who the Canucks think he is where they're mentioning him in the same breath as their core pieces, right, at the end of the season press conference, then he's $8 million. So, and and are you really going to do anything a year from now in a world where you've got $26.5, tied up in OEL, Graves, Heronic, and Hughes? Yeah. <laughs> like, come on. That's gross. That's fair. It's just, again, I'm looking at way... Like, when I say when I talk about the Chicago trade down, it's not as if that would be my first choice option. If I, I know was you, I know you love it. it. I, I swear this is 
this is like a psyop. You're you're manufacturing consent. I am for a completely absurd deal. This is how it could work in your favor, right? Because you could get a reasonable deal in free agency on a really good player like Ryan Graves. Except you diminish your chance of getting a real difference maker. That's true. I, I I don't I I'm not disputing that that is true and you create this environment where you're spending an uh, just a, a bucket load like you do that series of moves that you just mm-hmm. suggested and you know Myers and Graves is eleven <laughs> you know like you just you get up really quickly to thirty million dollars on a blue line that still is what average below average below average probably just below uh, average i don't know if you had if you had a graves Ronick, had- graves myers oel hughes bear yeah that's like 33 million which would probably be one or two in the league would top five for sure in terms of calf spend and is what 15th to 18th best defense like probably not even probably not even man i don't know if you i think if you have no, hughes Ronick, and it. graves that gets you to average <laughs> no, it doesn't. I think it does. Go look around. Go look around, man. That's ludicrous. You're just, that's, you know what? That's like those Vancouver Canucks takes where you only watch Vancouver and not the other teams. And you're like, oh, they're good. I like these guys. It's like, do you watch the league? <laughs> Come on. But the thing is, you'd have what? One guy who'd play regular minutes for Vegas? What? You don't think Ronick or Graves is playing regular minutes for Vegas? Who who are they bumping out? Oh, come on, man. Who are they bumping out? Come on. You think think Ronick's playing over White Cloud? Yes, I do. He is. He obviously is. And Graves is playing over Hag. No way. Yes, he is. No chance. He absolutely is. Dude, Hag's a star. Come on. Hag's really good. Sorry, you realize realize you're dealing with... I mean, if you said McNabb, I'd be like, okay, that probably makes sense. But Haig? They're fine. He played that's over their tough minutes. That's their tough minutes pair. And you think they're playing Hronik in tough minutes the way they're playing White Cloud? No chance. They'd, they'd view Hronik as, are we playing Hronik or Shea Theodore tonight? And guess who they're playing? They're playing Philip Hronik. Not over Shea Theodore, but they're playing him over Zach White Cloud. They value, no, they're not. They would value the talent upgrade. No, they're not. 100% they would. Th- they would play the guy who holds up in tough minutes for them. He's playing the toughest minutes for them, man. Uh, look, Ludicrous. I love Vegas's defense. I love Vegas's defense, but I'm just telling you, Philip Ronick would not be a healthy scratch. You are sleeping. Philip Ronick would not be a healthy sleeping scratch. on White Cloud. I like White Cloud. I really like White Cloud. I like all of their defenders. But come on, they're not. They are not playing. Uh, they, they're not scratching Philip Ronick if they have him available. They're just not. Oh, man, they are. Uh, six fifty, six fifty. You can get your text into the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, yeah some people are fired up here about this one, Um, but we will uh, continue the Canucks conversation, talk more about what they can do on the blue line coming up this summer. Uh, 650-650 again is the Dunbar Lumber text line. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. (laughs) Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trans, live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, great text here from uh, Vers- 
Sangatorix. Uh, don't know if I'm saying that right, but he says, I guarantee you you're not. Uh, well, whatever. <laughs> close enough. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I think the problem in the Drance that was take close to something. regarding Vegas's defense core, if it were to include Hronik, is an exercise in primordial time. Just because a thing has been away does not mean that it was absolutely necessary to be that way in order to reach the current situation. And the Vegas Golden Knights, in their current success, are non contingent. Not really sure what that means, I'm but I enjoyed sure, the take. I'm tried the take. I'm pretty sure he's just mimicking my like absurd vocabulary. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's just making fun of me. I thought the one from Owen hit the nail on the head. Um, I don't think Horonic gets into Vegas's lineup, but that's only because they have two very good offensive defensemen as their top two right-handed D. Shea Theodore and Braden McNabb are their third pair. Everybody just want to quickly put that out there. All playoffs long, that's been their third pair. But nonetheless, I still like this text. They need something different in White Cloud. Exactly. And honestly, this comes back to the Pod Colson conversation we were having in the sort of front end of the show. We're so used to evaluating hockey players on the back of a hockey card, on on counting stats, on, you know, how they make us feel when we see their name in a lineup. You know, like you see the line rushes Mm -hmm. uh, tweet. Go out and you're like, no, I want the upside guy, the young, exciting, dynamic guy up higher in the lineup ahead of, you know, Phil DiGiuseppe or whatever. But the battle winners, the guys who control play, the guys who help you transition, they help you win. Like, Zach Whitecloud is the sort of defender you need handling toughs the way he has for Vegas all playoffs long to win. And and the 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 underrating Nick Hague thing, like Nick Hague's unbelievable, man. Nick Hague is. Hey, I was singing his praises earlier in the show. I'm not sick. disagreeing with you. I just and also really saying, like Ryan Graves. There's no world where Ryan thing, Graves but to, plays. But over to Nick your Hague. point about you don't just need the flash, you need the substance, right? And you need the guys who can be those 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 types of players for you, not just in the playoffs, but also in the regular season. Yeah, I mean that's kind of, that's partly what I'm talking about though. If you can turn the cap space you're spending on Garland or Besser, who I like both of them for different reasons as players generally, but again, you're turning that cap space on the wings from players that are like theoretically top six guys but don't necessarily move the needle a ton to a guy in Ryan Graves who I think does move the needle for you on your blue line, right? Like that's to me part of the argument for going out and acquiring a player like that. Yeah, and I mean. I like Graves a lot because he's got the size, but also clearly can key the rush well enough to be an active part of of successful offensive attacks in, mm-hmm. in New Jersey and um, and Colorado. And I think that's essential because we can't ignore that. Like Horonic is a really dynamic puck mover. Mm-hmm. Ethan Bear is a savant on retrievals, which at least adds. Like I don't think he's a particularly dynamic carry the puck through the neutral zone and gain the line with his feet type, but at least he can get back, yep. turn, get back, and and maintain possession. So that's an upgrade over over what the Canucks have iced. You know, in terms of addressing the fundamental flaw of this club's defensive group, which is the inability to move the puck when Quinn Hughes isn't on the ice, um, those guys go a, a, like a fair distance. So I look at this team now, and I'm like, okay, there's two guys that I trust to move the puck, and you know, and a, and a, maybe two and a half. Two and a half, yeah, Bear being the half. So yeah. you're halfway there, right? Because you need more than that. Like, you know, in the Ryan Graves mold, I would put Radko Gudis, who's like not fleet of foot, but can make sort of the, the deceptive sure. move to get the puck going in the right way, is skilled enough. Um, you you got to have five in the contemporary game. Like, you can't have more than one guy 
who struggles on the breakout if you're going to win. And Vegas is a perfect example where, like, only Shea Theodore is a real threat to move the puck with his mm-hmm. feet, but all of Haig, White Cloud, um, you know, everyone but McNabb, basically, are, are able to, you know, at least do the Wolanin thing, where you, like, wait the extra second or move the forward with a little bit of skill and then, you know, hit the forward with the pass. I, the Canucks need more of that. More of that. And, and Graves at least fits the profile in a way that I don't think, like, Carson Soucy yep. would sort of be the lower-end version of this player. And I don't think he fits that profile. Now, the flip side is you're probably you're paying way less in all likelihood to get Carson Soucy, or significantly less. And it, I maybe half. I understand that, right? And I, I do get your point about there's only so much you can invest uh, on your blue line. You're already paying so much for different guys. I mean, just thinking about it during the break, like, maybe I should come around on the idea of an OEL buyout, right? And maybe that is a, you know, if you buy out OEL and then you spend some of that money on Ryan Graves, right? And you don't have to do the trade down then, you can still pick 11. I Like, I think that's pretty interesting. I, I still am wary about the, the cap hit on your book for a long time, the dead cap on your book for a long time as a result of an OEL deal, but... I don't know. I just look at the Ryan, the Ryan Graves potential deal, and like I think that's a guy that you're going to be really, really happy with. And if there's a relatively straightforward path to clearing the cap space, and let's let's include an OEL buyout in there, even though obviously huge financial commitment and all of that, I get that. But at least at that at, at that point, you're clearing OEL salary pretty significantly, and you're immediately turning it into a guy who fits exactly what this team needs more of at a fairly reasonable price, right? So for me, it's like that is, I, I guess more than anything, it's if you are going to do something which which involves future pain to clear cap space, which you're basically going to have to, Ryan Graves is the guy that I would be okay spending that extra cap space on. There's some other players out there on the market that I would not want them to do, like Ivan Barbashev, for example, to play third line center. That would make me very nervous, but at least I think the Ryan Graves deal would really, really help you on the ice, and it wouldn't kill you uh, from a salary cap standpoint either. Yeah, look, I'm I'm all for it if you can clear the cap space. I, you know, the the OEL buyout thing. I mean, we've talked about this a lot, and and I tend to be more forgiving of that as an option than than most conventional analysts like you know i i read my friend uh frank saravalli's mm-hmm. uh buyout watch mm-hmm. right and he, he you know he described it as what too cumbersome yes uh, for punitive, too long yeah. and and he's right it's just that it's always like it's not as punitive as holding the deal that's the thing you know <laughs> yeah it's a, a, and i'd add that realistically this is the last year where the cap savings actually make sense to to do it like i it's just uh you miss this opportunity and it's over sort of thing so i i mean i can see doing it i can see not doing it you know i, I there's so much that can happen to a player who's ekman larson's age mm-hmm. uh, especially with his history of lower body injuries that you know there there might be cleaner ways out of this if you wait uh, so i'm okay with a passive approach here particularly because i just don't think like you're never going to convince me that the marginal value of bringing in Graves into the Canucks lineup is significant enough to warrant doing things like trading down out of 11 or buying out Oliver ekman Larson. Like, this team's not contending next year, almost likely, no matter what stories they're telling themselves internally. And so it's really hard for me to analyze them with the assumption 
that, oh, if you free up that $7 million in cap space, $7.1 million in cap space by buying out OEL, that can make you this? Like, that can make you what? Mm. That can make you close to a playoff team? Like, cool. You know, like, I don't know. what is that worth it? Why, why are we continuing to even entertain that these that rearranging debt chairs is a sensible safety precaution. Well, and that's always been a big part of my reluctance for the OEL buyout, right? Mm. Is that it's not just the dead cap for years. It's like, what are you going to immediately turn around and do with that? Are you going to be replacing it with a deal that in two years you're like, oh man, we got to attach assets to move this deal, right? Are you just are you are you basically just adding more uh, credit card debt on top of what you already have for down the line? I, again, I don't think Graves would represent that at least not to me i think it's a low enough risk deal as as much as any ufa deal can be that i would it would be palatable for me now again i'm having this discussion in the framework of we've seen we've seen and heard from the team what course they're on would it be my number one choice no but if you're if they're intent on trying to do all these different things at once and clear cap space and, and make a push for the playoffs and improve the roster for next year that represents like the most palatable, the most palatable way to do it to me out of out of a number of much less uh, appetizing options. Now, there were uh, another couple of names uh, that I want to talk about on your um, y- your defenseman targets list that you had up the athletic with Harmon Dial. Uh, one of them we mentioned a little bit, right? Carson Soucy out of Seattle. A lot of interesting things going on there. Six foot five can play on the left side, can play on the right side. The only concern for me, and this is something you guys mentioned in the piece, is that he hasn't necessarily been leaned on by the Kraken, right? Like, it, it reminds me a little bit of Tyler Myers. He's going to cost way less than that, but where like, Tyler Myers was not the, – the Winnipeg Jets did not play him heavily, right? They played other right-handed shot guys ahead of him. He was basically their third-pairing right-shot guy, and I see a little bit of that with Susie, where there's a lot of things to like about him, but the fact that the team – didn't necessarily give him a, a lot of responsibility would concern me a little bit with him. Absolutely, and it should. I mean, you ignore usage at your own risk, you know? Um, I tend to think NHL coaches know what they're doing. Like, this is one assumption that I've made um, based on the time that I've spent chatting with NHL coaches, watching games with NHL coaches, uh, working with them. And when a coach looks at their options and determines that this guy needs to play less and that this guy needs to not play much with our, you know, and then, and then there's, there's all sorts of sort of affiliated um, things that happen that can, that can fool you. So in Carson Soucy's case, you know, he played with Justin Schultz, first of all, who's like pretty good. Mm -hmm. Like I think Justin Schultz is a really good player and Justin Schultz really keyed sort of the transition game for that pair. And that pair played a well below average rate of their ice time for a, for a defense pair in the NHL with their own top six players and played a sub-average amount of time against the opponent's top six players. So what does that tell you? That tells you that Carson Soucy in general played a role where goals were altogether less likely, right? So, so then people will say things like, well, his defensive metrics are really good and his offensive metrics aren't. And it's like, well, I don't ding him for the for the offensive right. side because he's not playing with you know the the Beniers and McCann as much as Will Borgen is or or Vince Dunn is, but also he's not playing against Pedersen. He's playing against Garland, 
you know, and that, and there's a difference, a material difference there. We all know it. So I always think it's really difficult, especially because I think the appeal of, of going after Susie from a Canucks perspective is like, in your mind's eye, can you see him as a Hughes caddy? Yes. Right. Yep. I, and, and I actually think he'd be really good in that spot because of the fact that he's a lefty who can play the right side. And because when you look at the seasons where he's really popped offensively, he's he's often he's been, been the on guy, the right. He's side. often been the guy on the right side. Right. Like, I think his shot plays really well from the right side. And you could also in your mind's eye be like, and he could stabilize a pair with Ronick, depending on how we decide to deploy it or like he gives the Canucks some interchangeability and at the right price, you know, is also young enough that it can be like a piece for three years. So uh, th- that's the argument for Carson Soucy. The argument against is he doesn't move the needle for this team in terms of the quest to add five competent puck movers. And you'd have to wonder, how can he hold up in larger usage, given that he was and, pretty protected? And by I the just crowd. wonder with Soucy, you know, you say, OK, maybe he can play with Hughes or Hronick, but. I would be pretty nervous about uh, Susie Hronick pair and their ability to hold up in any sort of uh, tough minutes. And the other thing with Susie that I wonder about is on a theoretical, you know, I think the projection uh, you guys were using was what, like three years, 2.6 million. Again, a guy who's six foot five, who's relatively young for a UFA in a year where Vegas is doing what they're doing with the size they have on the blue line, I could see the bidding and the number getting. Uh, pretty silly for Carson Soucy, or at least taking it out of so, taking it out of the realm of you know, hey, a relatively safe, low risk bet to something that could be pretty uncomfortable and something that would be tough for the Canucks to make work uh, with their various salary cap constraints. So Soucy, I, I like some of it, but I think it's going to be probably too expensive, and there's enough downside there to kind of scare me away. The other name that I thought was really interesting, and if we're just talking about purely what's realistic for a team in the Canucks position, this might end up being the most realistic option, and it's it's not a sexy one, but it's uh, Dmitry Kulikov, right? As just a a left-shot depth defenseman that this team needs, that this team should bring in to compete with some of the guys lower down on the depth chart who's coming off a brutal, brutal season. Uh, but, you know, in, in his career has been decent enough and could be a very, very affordable option for this team. Like, that's a name that stood out for me because I've been talking about, you know, Ian Cole – he might be a lot more expensive than that. If you're looking for that true bargain bin player, Kulikov might be a reasonable option, a reasonable bet to take a shot at. Yeah, 100%. I, I mean, I, I think you could do a lot worse. <laughs> I think you could do a lot worse. Um, if he doesn't Especially bounce, if it's one year. But if one like year, that, if he doesn't bounce back, no big deal. That's the same reason I was so into the Sean Monaghan idea, man. Like, if, if that's what you're doing for this year, like, we're just taking one-year bets – Right, but we're not sacrificing our future flexibility. We're not moving heaven and earth to make the salary cap space to sign these guys. But we're taking one year bets that could actually really help us move up the standings. That like that's kind of a best case scenario for me. Yeah, and I'm okay with that too. I mean, that's the approach that I think they should have taken last year. Mm. Right. Um, in in concert, ideally with having moved more money out. Right, moving more good players out as opposed to, um, you know, paying to get off Dickinson who turned out to be totally fine in Chicago. Um, so, you know, I sort of look at that as absolutely the right approach and and one that the club should ideally combine with finding a way to shed salary without having to pay to do it. Yeah. You know, if, if you can do that, that's a home run summer, even if your bets don't hit, simply because you've stewarded the organization through the first responsible long-sighted cycle that they'd have had since, what, 2013? 
Something like that, like that summer where they had no cap space and all they could do was sign Brad Richardson, who was totally good. Mm-hmm. Who worked out really well. Yeah, like, that's it. You know, that sometimes that's the best you can do, and that's fine. You know, the, where this organization keeps getting into trouble is that faced with a set of relatively clear options and, and not even that much long-term pain, they sort of throw a Hail Mary. You know, it's like, uh, do you remember that Patriots Raiders game in the season where they're like going for the and then they throw yes, the the back pass to the quarterback. It's like come on. <laughs> it's like what 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 would have happened even if he had caught the ball? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like even if it had worked out, it would have been an absolute disaster and it would have gone nowhere uh for your team. Um by the way, uh basketball Phil texts in. Uh not an R or not a UFA, but he says uh, Thomas, what sort of deal should the Kraken give to Will Borgen? And uh we were talking about it you and me at the break and you're like, "Man, I love Will Borgen. I was like, I'm aware. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm aware. So basketball Phil is like really micro-targeting his text just to get you excited, just to get you on a on a Will Borgen tangent here. I mean, yeah, well done. <laughs> you nailed it, bud. Um, I mean, Will Borgen is sick. You know, the, the projection at Evolving Hockey, because Will Borgen's an RFA, right? And and this and he doesn't have the counting stats, so he's yep. got a pretty modest their predicted cap hit for him is two years, 1.6. Um, I, I mean, given how modest that is, I think if you're the Kraken and you can push this out and buy the rest of his 20s at a reasonable cost, I would do so. Like, Evolving Hockey suggests that he'd be worth 3.6 on a six-year deal. I mean, you know, even if you even if you're able to land the sorts of guys that can push him down onto the third pair eventually – which they should be trying to do. Sure. Right? I mean, if you're able to bring in a top pair righty at some point, if you're able to bring in Eric Carlson, mm. which, by the way, they should totally do. That would be fun as anything. And you can go Carlson, Larson, Borgen down the right side, and you've got Borgen at three, three and a half. I mean, that's champagne problems. That's fantastic. So he he's the sort of player, you know, five or six, three to four million. I, I, if, if I'm the Kraken, that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, six fifty, six fifty is the Dunbar Lumber text line. So and I actually earnestly answered. That. No, 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 no. You you gave a very fair answer. Although, of course, it involves going long on Will Borgen, which shouldn't be a surprise from from you. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was very measured. More measured than yeah. most of your Will Borgen. I takes. mean, look, it's cool to have a, a three four defenseman for one and a half million. That's cool, right? But what's really cool <laughs> is to have a three four defenseman for six years at three million. Uh-huh. Um, That's awesome. Then. Then you can build all sorts of redundancies in and around your blue line. And I think the Kraken have to be careful here because they have a really straightforward route to improving next year, right? And if you do Borgen at two million, two million times two years or something, right, and, and mm-hmm. sort of walk him to unrestricted free agency or very close to it, that might help you maximize your point totals for the next two years. But is this team winning? In the next two years. You know, or, or are they going to be – or, or is their best shot going to be when Beneers is like 25? Yep. You know what I mean? And they've, like, I think that's sort of where this gets interesting. I effectively would build my deals, especially for like Vince Dunn and Will Borgen, to be assets, right? Like, this, this, is, what, this is what I think the Kraken need to be mindful of here because they're too good already to have a straightforward route to accumulating elite talent at the top of the draft the way maybe that they they could have if the, if they'd had another unsuccessful season this year mm-hmm. 
And what, what Vegas has shown us is like, you need to be super aggressive when you're, you know, middling to top of the league to add graft championship caliber talent on your roster. It, it comes at a, at a hefty price, a hefty, hefty price. And so the Kraken should be treating Borgen and these, this done negotiation and on and on, especially with defensemen who have so much trade value, like they should be building it out, thinking about being really conscious of what's Vince done as a trade asset. What's Will Borgen as a trade asset? Because to get to where Vegas is right now with a one, nothing lead in the Stanley cup final, like I do think they're going to need to add, you know, the, the sorts of imposing star level players so that we're not talking about like, man, what a great season 40 goal scorer Jared McCann and fringe Norris candidate Vince Dunn had, you know, but to be like, wow, they really have the best defenseman in hockey or wow, they really have one of the best goal scorers in hockey, as opposed to a bunch of guys who are, you know, phenomenally useful. And I think can be parts of a future crack and championship team, but probably need to not be the best players. If this team's going to advance to, you know, the Stanley Cup final. Uh, by the way, just a minute or so left in the show here. Um, for anyone who was holding out hope for the uh, Connor Bedard pulling the Eric Lindros on the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, he's no. holding an availability at the Stanley Cup final and says, which is hilarious in its own right. If they decide to take me, that would be unbelievable. So leaving a little bit of room for if Chicago goes off the board at number one, but does say it would be unbelievable to be selected by the Chicago Blackhawks. I got a big Bedard feature. Dropping on dropping this week, dropping on Wednesday. But I'm telling you, anyone who has spent any time with this kid knows that there was no chance of that happening. Like even the I, even the Arizona thing, I'm telling you, if the, if Arizona had won the draft lottery, this kid would have woken up the next day and been like, My goal is to make hockey the most popular sport in Maricopa County. Like that's just who he is. And that's to his credit. That's one of the reasons why I'm convinced he's going to be one of the top hockey-playing humans on this planet in short order. So there you go. That's the latest from Connor Bedard. Uh, the People's Show with Bick Nazar is up next. Apparently, Bick forgot what time his show started today, was supposed to come into the studio, uh, and now just has to work from home because he, he managed his time so poorly. Wow, you're so, throwing him under the bus like that? Uh, that's tough. That's why, tough why, stuff. Why would you throw him under the bus like why that? Why wouldn't I? <laughs> I don't know, man. Come on, man. We're a sports radio station. You don't have to tell somebody how... screws up. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta bury him for it. You don't have to tell everyone how the sausage gets made, my bro. <laughs> Sometimes I do. Anyway, so hopefully that means Bick uh, like put all his energy into crafting he's, a really good show. He's under a black cloud, right? What? He's oh, under a black cloud for from United. struggling. Yeah. yeah, which which is too bad, um, because if he was under a white cloud, he'd be in the lineup. <laughs> All right. Over well, Philip Perona. On that note, uh, the uh, the Mr. Poor Time Management, Bick Nazar, coming up next on The People's Show. It is Sportsnet 650.